Well, it's, it is great to be here. But let me start with a question before we jump into God's word. How did you walk in this evening? How did you walk in? Now, I don't mean how did you, did you kind of stroll in quickly or, you know, hobble in if you were old or uh, come burdened by kids' toys or nappy sacks or whatever I mean, but how did you walk in this evening or this afternoon in terms of what was going on in your mind, what was going on in your head? Were you aware of something that had happened in the daytime, some kind of sin that you had struggled with that was a challenge to you, that left you discouraged or uh, perhaps you're exhausted because of something that's happened today or in the week or... um, Maybe you just feel, you look at your life and you look at the day and you feel a little bit hypocritical, you know, oh, I've got to go to church, but if people really knew what I was like, I don't know whether I'd be allowed in. Anybody have that experience sometimes? I know I do. Perhaps you just feel a little bit cold and distant that, you know, there's a situation or a circumstance going on in your life where God just feels like at the other end of the world and you feel isolated and alone that you feel a little bit lifeless, perhaps, you know, when it comes to spiritual things, you take your temperature and you just feel a little bit tepid, a little bit lukewarm. And you look back and you take a a long, hard look at your day or your week or your life and you just feel a little bit like a... Anybody feel like that sometimes? Yeah, I do. Most days when I wake up and so we uh, you're going through the psalm of ascents and you know you get to psalm 122 and and perhaps Peter preached on this and he says you know I was glad when they said to me let us go up to the house of the Lord and you go not really I wasn't really that glad I'd rather well I normally it would be I would stay in bed but you can't really do that when you meet at four in the afternoon can you so but, you know, maybe you think, well, I, you know, I would be glad if I didn't have to do refreshments and I didn't have to do creche and I didn't have to do children's work and I didn't have to set up the tables and chairs. And so sometimes we come to God and we feel burdened, we feel tired, we feel exhausted, we question where's the joy that we once knew, you know, where's the vitality that we once experienced, you know, is there any hope of change because I just feel like I'm stuck in a rut uh, and I don't know whether, I, whether I'm ever going to recover from this spiritual apathy or lethargy or complacency or whatever it might be that you kind of experience as you kind of go through the motions. Well, we come to a, a psalm this evening or this afternoon where God provides hope for people in that kind of situation. If you know the the book of or the period of the portion of the Psalms that you're in, it's a a song of ascents. This was, you know, the the Jews and the Hebrews as they went up to Jerusalem for the various festivals. This was their iTunes playlist. This was the, the kind of the road trip songs that they sang as they were sought to encourage themselves as they went up to Jerusalem to meet with God, to encounter his presence, to celebrate his goodness to us. And so uh, some of them on the journey would have felt, as I just described, weighed down, discouraged and burdened questioning whether that there's going to be any hope. They, they knew that they were genuinely God's people, and perhaps you sit there and you know genuinely that you've been saved, you've been rescued, you've been converted, but you just feel that things aren't quite right. Psalm 126 provides hope and answers for people who are feeling a bit bleh. And so let's 
look at it together because I think what God wants to do is encourage me and hopefully encourage you as well because it's got great answers to people who feel a little bit exhausted or discouraged or hypocritical, cold, distant, you fill in the blank. Now, as Andy read for us, it's, it, the psalm is divided into two main chapters, or two main parts, rather. Two main parts. There's verses 1 to 3, and there's verses 4 to 6. And so I thought the best way for us to tackle this psalm is to tackle it in its two parts. And what you find in, in this psalm is that verses 1 to 3 could be put under the heading of past grace remembered, and then verses 4 to 6 could be put under the heading of future grace anticipated. So we've got past grace remembered, future grace anticipated, or to put it into terms that you might be able to remember, what God did and what God will do. What God did, what God will do. Past grace remembered, future grace anticipated. So that's how I'm going to tackle this psalm together. So let's begin with this first chunk, verses 1 to 3, where it's past grace remembered or what God did. So look with me at verse 1, because verse 1 says, uh, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. So verse 1 begins with this recounting of how God has done incredible things to and for his people in the past. He's restored their fortunes. Now, fortunes is a little bit of an unfortunate word, if you like, because it can, you can think of fortune cookies and it being, you know, luck and so forth. But the Bible doesn't use it like that. It's basically saying uh, he restored good situations and circumstances in our lives. He restored uh, something about our existence and a reality that we were in that we were able to rejoice and we were excited Now, many biblical scholars and people who write about the Bible, and particularly about the Psalms, think that Psalm 126 is a psalm that celebrates God's rescue of his people from the exile. So... um, in, uh, there's, a, there's a repeated cycle in the Old Testament, if I just give you a little bit of background. So there's this repeated cycle all the way through your first, the first half of your Bible, where God is good to his people, he lavishes grace upon them, he loves them, he's, gra- he's gracious, he's faithful, and his people lap it up and they enjoy it and they celebrate. But very quickly, they forget God, or they turn to other gods and they abandon God, and as they kind of go through this step two of abandoning God, they run into trouble, and it gets bad for them. They get into a mess, and so they begin to cry out to God for mercy and to great, for grace to rescue them, and God, because he is gracious and faithful, rescues his people, pours out his mercy upon them, and they lap it up, and they enjoy it, and then very soon they forget about God, abandon him, and they just go. That's the cycle of your Old Testament, basically. That's what happens day after day, week after week, throughout the Old Testament, God is good, his people enjoy it, but they abandon him, then they get into trouble, then they cry out for mercy, and God is faithful and rescues them, and then it just goes round and round again. And so, one of the biggest uh, portions of Old Testament history is that God's people uh, 
were in the land, were, they built the temple, the temple under David and Solomon, and they were enjoying uh, prosperity, and then they began to turn their back on God. They'd squandered his grace through spiritual complacency, through lethargy, through apathy, through spiritual adultery, if you like. And so God, in 586 BC, sends the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Israel, to destroy the city of Jerusalem, to destroy the temple, and take them all to Babylon as his kind of captures, captors. And so, that's, and so they were in Babylon for 70 years under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and various other uh, pagan kings until such a time that God rescued them. And you can read all about it in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, a period of where God, uh, a cycle where God rescued his people from exile and brought them back into the promised land, allowed them to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, restore uh, worship of God in its proper means and ways, and God was good to them. But the cycle continued, and it seems from verse 4 that they were in a barren and cheerless place again because the first word of verse four is restore our fortunes, O Lord. But we'll get to that in a second. Now, so, so Psalm 126, most people think was written after the exile, celebrating God's deliverance of them. You restored our fortunes. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues were full of songs of joy. The nations looked on and said, wow, God is really among these people. And we looked on and we said, yes, he is. He's great and he's done good things for us and we are glad. But if you read Psalm 126, it doesn't mention the exile, even though that might be the category or the context in which it was written. And I don't think it mentions the exile because I think God wants the psalm to speak to all of us in whatever situation and circumstance we find ourselves in, where we need our fortunes, if I use that word, restoring. So it doesn't clearly tie, it isn't clearly tied to a specific situation, but it's there for, God gives us words and he gives us a voice to use when we're struggling, when we're exhausted, when we're discouraged, when we're wearied, when we're feeling hypocritical, when we're cold and distant and perhaps in exile. God gives us this psalm to encourage us. And what is clear about this psalm is that it celebrates a remarkable and sudden deliverance. It, it, there's, at some point, the, the Jews had, were having a bad day and it turned to a good day. At some point, they were having a crisis and a disaster. And then they were, it was alleviated and they re- experienced God's blessing. At some point, their sins and their unfaithfulness had been covered and forgiven. And they were free and alive and forgiven and enjoying and basking in that glory. And at some point, their troubles that were old troubles had passed away and they were experiencing a kind of a new beginning or a new hope. What God did in the past wasn't just a cause for celebration, though. It was a, it was a motivation to praise him. You see, they they remembered what God did in verse 1. Remember when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. We were like those who dream. When he says we were like those who dream, he just means literally, uh, well, I think, uh, it, it was so unreal. It was so incredible. It was like you had to pinch yourself to see if this was really happening. Do you ever have those dreams where you go, oh, I really hope I don't wake up from this? 
Do you ever? I mean, not. I don't have them very often, but you, you kind of, you have this suddenly something is going on, and you think this is so good, this is so amazing. I can't believe it. Is it really real? Is it really happening? Am I going to wake up and feel like, oh, it was just a dream? No, it was like they, they were celebrating. It was like ah, oh, they, there was so much joy. There was an abundance of joy. They were uncontrollable in their bursting forth of happiness. They loved to sing the praises of God. They were laughing and enjoying His salvation. It was better than they could ever have imagined it was the best day ever it was you know their best life now all of those kind of things they, they God's people God had worked in such a way that they were amazed and they were dazed it was kind of like whoa wow whoa wow all rolled into one it was like shock and awe and they were remembering all that God did Because he had delivered them in such an undeniable, undeserved, unexpected, and an incredible way that they just had to celebrate. And in fact, the nations around them joined in as well. Because the psalmist tells us, the nation said, look, the Lord has done great things among them. And they said, yes, he has. He has blessed us. So God acted and all of his people and his enemies rejoiced and admired him. And this turnaround in their fortunes brought such an overwhelming joy and a, and a witness to the glory of God that was real and deep and abundant and powerful and wonderful. And yet it was also temporary because it didn't last forever. And as you know, and as I know, uh, life is a mix of ecstasy and agony. Life is a mix of good and bad. Life is a mix of abundance and lack. Life is a mix of... Um, prosperity and adversity. Life is a mix of gladness and sorrow. Life is a mix of feeling like you're soaring on eagle's wings at one, at one point and then sinking on the Titanic at the next. It doesn't, joy never seems to last very long. There's always something that's looking to swallow it up, gobble it up, and it was no different for the psalmist and his generation. So very quickly, the cycle of the Old Testament comes around again. People need deliverance. God needs to work. They need restoration. They need saving. Uh, Restore our fortunes, O God. In verse 4. Now, perhaps you and I can identify with the psalmist. Perhaps, let me, just, let, let me just throw a few categories out. As I was thinking about this, this is, you know, these are things that, are, that I have walked through over the last few years. You have an experience of the saving grace of God. You know that you've become a Christian. You, he has worked genuinely in your heart. And do you remember back to those first days? You, you loved Jesus so much when you first became a Christian. You loved him. You would do anything for him. You, would, you were sucking it all up. You, you couldn't contain yourself. Nobody had to tell you to evangelize. You just went out there and told everybody that you knew about how great this Jesus was. And he had saved you and he changed your life forever. And you, were, and, and you just exploded with joy. And then the humdrum of life sets in. And sin crouches at your door and niggles away at you. And... You fall into temptation and perhaps you suffer persecution. People at your workplace laugh at you for becoming a Christian. You, you begin to have doubts. You, questions go through your mind and your joy evaporates quickly. Your joy evaporates quickly and you just can't seem to recover that former feeling that you had when you first became a Christian. That's happened to me. Let me give you another one. You're a Christian and 
you sit under the preaching of God's word and you, you're convicted of your sin in a particular area and you are determined to put it to death with God's help. And so you begin to fight sin in this area and you are encouraged as you kind of download John Piper's Fighter Verses app on your phone and you're reading them every day and you're memorizing scripture and you're battling sin and you're putting off the old way of living and you're putting on the new way of living and you're seeing growth in your Christian life and you're seeing fruit being born as, and seeing small victories and small victories snowball into bigger victories and you start to think yes I'm growing as a Christian and life is good and and that sin that used to always you know snap at my heel seems to I seem to have seen some growth in that area and then something happens and the fight seems harder you start to make excuses for sin well it's not really that bad you know, everybody else is doing it and they're doing worse things than me. And, you know, we, the desire to stand up and fight wanes as we experience failure. And we just go, oh, I just, I've done it again. Will I ever be able to change? Will this ever come to an end? And we're tempted to throw in the towel. That's happened to me. What about this one? This doesn't happen to me very often, but you, you feel a closeness in communion with God. You know, do you ever remember back maybe in your life, there's days where when you got out your Bible and you prayed, it was like Jesus was in the room with you. And, you know, you got out your Bible and you read and the, and the minutes turned into hours and the hours turned into more hours and you lost yourself reading your Bible. And when you were praying, it was like, you know, I don't even think Elijah prayed as well as I did. And Moses, he did, you know, I could teach him a thing or two about prayer. And, you know, you were, you were lost in your communion with God and it just felt wonderful. But now, and we blame it on Facebook if we can get up in time and we can put away the distractions and we feel like it, when we occasionally feel like reading our Bibles, it, you know, we, it just feels like we move the bookmark on. And we think, what did I read this morning? Or we pray and it just feels like the prayers just bounce back from the ceiling straight onto us. And we go, oh, I guess heaven's closed tonight or today or whatever. I have that experience. What about fellowship amongst God's people? Maybe there were former days in your life where you had that one special friend who used to be up late into the night talking about Jesus with them and about the things that you were learning about in your Bible. And your relationship with that person was sweet and it was deep and it was real. And they really knew you and you really knew them. And yet you still loved each other warts and all and by your love for one another people knew that you were Jesus's disciples and it was fantastic and then perhaps that person passed away or moved away or sin destroyed that relationship or you just move in different circles now because of the season of life that you're in and you long for those days of rich fellowship because now they just seem to be replaced by, oh yeah, I like the people that are around me, but they're just, you know, we just don't have what we had back then. It feels shallow or a bit superficial in comparison. I've had that as well. What about this one? And it's interesting, Andy's question about what would you say to your church two and a half years in? Uh, What about the early days of church planting? I remember this 14 years ago when I was a young whippersnapper, uh, still a young whippersnapper now, just bald, 
But I put that down to my six children rather than anything else. Um, but back in the day when we were planting this church, you know, there was excitement about being involved in the ground level and, and anticipating what God would do. You know, thinking about you know, praying, giving, preparing, launching, enjoying, celebrating all that God would do. And that you know, we had a small group of people and there was a willingness and a, and a joy amongst everybody. I mean, we, you know, we were batting people away who were saying like, oh, can I do creche this week? And we were like, no, you served last week. Now we're saying, can you do creche this week? And they say, no, I served last year. And, you know, it, you know, and so life was really exciting back then. And it was fun and it was fantastic. And people were willing to sacrifice and to give their time. And you did, you wanted to be involved in everything. And now, you know, it's a little bit not like that anymore. And over time, the excitement wanes. And perhaps it's replaced by a little bit more frustration then excitement. The humdrum of the Christian life means that we've plateaued a little bit. Um, you know, serving just becomes a little bit of an inconvenience and it feels like we're, we're more in the trenches than we were soaring on the wings of eagles. And I hope it's not like that here. And it, you know, church is like a roller coaster. It goes through different times. But that's happened to me as well. And so the memories of the past, we, we can start to look back with a, like a nostalgia, rose-colored spectacles, and we go, oh, you know, the older I get, the better it was, you know, or those were the days. Oh, those were the days. Yeah, we, it's like angels were in the room with us. It was fantastic, but they're gone, long gone. You know, it was, it was my best life then, but not now. And we can be tempted to look back with nostalgia, but Psalm 126 doesn't allow us to do that because it doesn't want us to wallow there because past grace remembered, and if you can identify with any of those things, I said, well, you you know, communion with God, fellowship, Bible reading, excitement at serving God, battling sin, growing in Christ, the, the early days of your salvation. You know, as we remember what God did, it's supposed to motivate us and provide hope for what God will do in the future. Remembering past grace here in Psalm 126, as the pilgrims were on their long journey up to Jerusalem, as they recounted God's favor, it was, a, it was designed to give them impetus to not just settle for the mediocre, not just settle for the average, not just settle for the dreary present that was hopeless or a little bit cheerless or a little bit barren, but it was to ask, it was uh, fuel for the fire to ask God to let the good times roll again. That's what this psalm is about. It's a crying out to God as they remember the past, asking him to revive them again, to restore them again, to renew them again as they go up to meet with him. That as they remembered history, as they remembered his story of the past, it gave them fresh faith for the future for God to write more of his story. So as they remembered history, his story, it gave them faith for God to write more of his story. And as they contemplated what God did, as they remembered his character, his goodness, his graciousness, his faithfulness, it set the tone for them to confidently pray out to God, anticipating what God will do. And that's where we find ourselves now in the second half of the psalm. Verses four to six, here they go. This is what God will do as they pray it out. God, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. 
For he who goes out with weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaths with him. So the past was great, but the present, not so much. So what do they cry out? They cry out, God, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Restore our fortunes, oh God. And there's a, there's a sense of desperation and a sense of urgency in verse 4 that we shouldn't miss. This is a cry that God would come and break in and smash the status quo of our spiritual apathy. That he would come in and break our complacency. That he would come in and remove us and rescue us from our mediocrity that we've settled for. That he would give us grace again. That he would search our lives and shape our aspirations and enlarge our hearts and draw us to himself in fresher and deeper and newer ways that he'd give us a renewed vision of him, a, a, um, a renewed life through him, a renewed faith in him, a renewed passion to serve him, a renewed hope for life and mission as God's people together. That's what's contained, if you like, in the restore our fortunes, oh God. Give us new life, O oh God. Give us a newness of life. This is the, that part of the cycle where God had been good, but they'd abandoned him and they'd run into trouble, so they're crying out to him. And because we know the cycle of the Old Testament, we know that God is committed to restoring his people and renewing their life and their joy in him because that's the kind of God that he is. And so we can sit here and know that verse 4 is going to be answered. But to encourage the pilgrims on the journey, the psalmist gives them two pictures to encourage them, two illustrations to encourage them about what God will do in verses 5 and 6. At first glance, verses 5 and 6, or 4, 5 and 6 rather, uh, these two pictures, they seem like they're contradictory and in opposition to one another, but actually they're complementary. So the first picture is this. You get this in ver- at the end of verse 4, where the psalmist prays, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev, or the Negev, whichever translation you're reading. Now, the Negev was a region in the south of Judah, in the south of Israel, which was hot, dry, sandy, lifeless, comfortless, God-forsaken, you might argue, desert. Nothing grew there. It didn't rain very often. No, nobody wanted to live there. It was, a, it was a horrible place. And yet, on the rare occasions in the wintertime, when it would rain, even just like one inch of the time, uh, the, the, the rain would wash down off the mountains and run through the Negev, through... Uh, channels, gullies in the land that used to be streams that had long dried up and it would rush down the hillside and through the streams and it would water the entire land and it would happen at such rapidity and at such a torrential force that it, it, some people record watching uh, buildings or bridges or roads or pathways being, uh, maybe not buildings, but bridges and pathways being washed away under the force of the water and the water would rush down into the Negev and then overnight... This hot, dry, arid, barren, comfortless, God-forsaken place would be transformed into a green, flowering, Eden-like paradise. That's what would happen. And you, you, there's people that you can read, commentators, people, historians, people who have been to the Negev, who will tell you their experience of seeing the waters transform the desert overnight. 
And the psalmist says, listen, God can restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Meaning God can suddenly, without warning, unleash his blessing upon his people at any time that he wants. And it will be a sheer gift of heaven. God will take the initiative. He will exercise his power. And from his fullness, boom, he will pour out his grace. Suddenly in moments, barrenness and parched land and parched souls can be restored by the grace of God. Transformed with newness of life and, and an abundance of life and it will be unearned it will be unexpected it will be undeserved and it will be overwhelming in its transformation it will be dramatic and so the psalmist says expect God to work like that expect him look for it pray for it anticipate it what God will do He'll pour out his grace. He'll pour out his blessing. He'll pour out his spirit. He'll pour out his favor. He will, like streams in the Negev, transform your desert-like soul into into an Eden-like paradise. Ray Ortland, who's an author who I enjoy reading, says this, Your Negev experience and mine... That place of drought, where our lives are parched, where our worship is dry, where our marriages are arid, where our evangelism is barren, can suddenly become a scene of of the unleashing of God's blessing. He is able to grant an extraordinary downpour of blessing upon you. Just savor that thought for a minute. Just, Just savor that thought for a minute. You walked in struggling in a moment God can pour out his blessing upon us and change us he's done it before remember when the Lord restored our fortunes it was like a dream we were full of laughter we were full of song people looked on and said surely God has done this because there's no other human explanation and we said yes he did and we were glad he's done it before he can do it again so let's have faith to trust him if you walked in barren you can walk out different because God is good and God is faithful and the first picture is a picture to create expectation and into anticipation about what God will do. But then there's a second picture. This is verses 5 and 6. And the picture is not streams in the Negev, but it's a picture of farming, seed time, and harvest. Now, revival, if you like, where God comes to church and he changes his people and he gives us new life and then we change the world through his power, uh, can come at any moment and any season of restoration, of renewal, of revival among God's people is a sheer miracle of God's grace. Uh, It's his doing. It's not something that we can trigger or force or make happen. But it's also true from Psalm 126 that we're not to sit idly by twiddling our thumbs, waiting for God to work and waiting for God to bless us, we are in fact to get busy. 
So it's two different ways of waiting, isn't there? If you notice, uh, if you go out to a bus stop, you will see people waiting for buses in two primary ways. Number one, there'll be people who sit there like this or like this, waiting for the bus. Or there's always the person who stands on the road going like this, don't they? You know, you see those people waiting at the bus? You see they're waiting, waiting, waiting. Or they're like this. God wants us not to wait like this. He wants us to be there on the lookout, waiting. And actually, the farming illustration is we're called not just to wait, but we're called to sow. We're called to sow seeds. We're called to plow the, gla- the land of our hearts, if you like. We're called to plant. We're called to work. We're called to water. And we're called to wait. And God will grow the crop. He'll bear the fruit. But it requires hard work and effort and toil. And, and it'll be laborious for us. But... As we get our hands dirty and as we exercise faith and as we plant seeds, the great promise of Psalm 126 is that there is a harvest that will come. Joy will come. So which picture is it you might be sitting there thinking? I walked in and I'm discouraged. So are you saying God could do it in a moment or are you saying I'm going to have to work hard? Uh, Is he going to suddenly bless me or or am I going to have to wait? Well, it's both. Isn't it? Psalm 126 says both. It's working and waiting. It's sudden and miraculous. God says it can be both. But the reality is God will work. This is what God will do. He will restore his people. He will revive us. Sometimes he works suddenly and miraculously, unexpectedly and undeservedly. Most of the time he works through the means that he's given us to sow seed and make the effort and wait for him. And those seeds are getting our nose in his Bible, praying. The results will be the same. He'll change us. He'll bear fruit. One is not quite as exciting as the other. One is not miracle a minute. One is not as dramatic, but both produce the same results. And so Psalm 126, I think, speaks to the pilgrim on a journey saying it's plodding. You keep going, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. You keep on your walk, you keep going, you sweat, you work, you suffer, you lock arms with one another in shared effort, you pray together, you care for one another, remembering that revival will come, it's, it's something that God does, he will trigger it, he will, for, he, he, he will bring it about, we can't earn it or force it, and yet he gives us the means of grace as a kind of uh, a, a conduit, if you like, to position ourselves to receive from him. Not a bell that we ring to get him to act on our behalf, but a, a, a means of grace that God has given us so that we undertake them. And in his sovereign working, he causes us to undertake them so that he can answer, so that he can move, so that he can bring forth a harvest. And so the psalm leaves us with a question, doesn't it, I think, if we're in the doldrums of our spiritual life, if the wind has really fallen out of our sails, if we're tired, if we're burdened, if we're guilty, if we're dissatisfied, it, he tells us to sow seeds. To sow seeds, to pray, to cry out to God, to restore our fortunes. So how do we sow seeds? How do we sow the seeds that we need to reap a harvest? Well, just four things that came to mind as I was thinking. Four, four words. 
take mostly out of the psalm. Number one, recount God's blessings. So if you're in the doldrums, recount the faithfulness of God to you in Christ, to you in the gospel, in different periods of your life. Do what the, the, the pilgrims in verse 1 did. Remember those past events. Remember the times where God was gracious to you. Remember the times where you had hope. Remember the times where there was visible activity of God in your life, where there was fruit, there was joy. Remember those and then yearn for them again. Long for them again. Let them not just be nostalgia in our minds, but let them be fuel for our faith. Remember that closeness and that intimacy that you experienced with God or with God's people or the joy that you had as you served him. Long for that experience again and let God's actions gratefully reviewed uh, encourage us for more, longing for more in the future. So recount the blessings of God. Second way we can sow seeds is repent where necessary. Where there's sin in our lives, where there's been idolatry in our lives, where there's been worldliness in our lives, where there's been a kind of a practical atheism, where we put our faith and our trust in everything else other than God himself. Let's repent of those things. Let's, when we've run into trouble, like the Old Testament cycle, let's cry out to God for mercy. They, I am sure in their crying out to God, they said, Lord, help us. We've sinned against you. We've turned our backs on you. We've abandoned you. Forgive us, God, and show mercy to us, God. So recount his grace. Repent of your sin, and then pray. This is what they do in verse 4, isn't it? They pray. Pray, God, move. God, restore. God, give me, revive me. Give me hope again. Trust his promises. Pray his word back to him. You've said You will revive your people again. You will be gracious to us. You will hear us in our times of trouble. Pray and cry out to him. And then return to his word. So recount, repent, pray and return to his word. Um, You will read of no revival, if I put it like that, in history or in the Bible, I think, where it doesn't center around God's word being center, front and center. You're, you're, no genuine, real, true revival where God's people are refreshed and restored. It, it doesn't happen apart from God's word. So as they came out of Babylon in the exile, it was Ezra, he discovered God's word and they read it 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 and they they recommitted themselves to God's word because it's God's word that brings life to us. So we need to recount his faithfulness, repent of our sin, pray and trust his promises and return to his word. Yeah, the ground of our hearts might be hard soil. We might be, remember the this parable of the sower in Luke 8, uh, where Jesus says, you know, as the word is scattered, as the, as the, the sower sows his seed, some falls on the stony path and it gets eaten up by the birds and some falls on the hard ground and doesn't really take root and some uh, falls amongst the thorns and it gets strangled off but some of it falls on good soil and it goes forth to bear a harvest of 30 60 and 100 fold let's pray and ask God to make us good soil for his word asking him to give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that although the ground might be hard and the song might be the sun might be strong and the labor might be intense and long God in his perfect timing will bring about a harvest of joy in our lives again. He's faithful to do that. Setbacks, disappointment, losses, crosses, obstacles, delays, thorns in the flesh, opposition, 
betrayals, all painful, all real. Sometimes we might sow in tears. The psalmist even says that. Sometimes life is hard. And the work is hard and it feels like we're watering the ground with our tears. But God doesn't remain unmoved. He's not, he doesn't remain ignorant. He doesn't go, these tears don't go unnoticed. He sees them and yet he still brings forth a harvest. And if you're sowing in tears right now, if you're in a situation in a circumstance where you are struggling, where you are wondering where God is, where you, are, you feel like your life is hung, you're hanging on like the edge of your life by your fingertips, and life is, is really hard, and, and it might be good now, but one day there'll be a day coming, prophet of doom that I am, where you will feel like your life is on the precipice and you're clutching on by your nails. The truth of God's word is, those who mourn will be comforted, Mark, uh, Matthew 5, 4. That God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, Romans 8, 28. That one day, everything that is broken will be fixed. Everything that is messed up will be put right. Everything that is of this old world will be restored and made new. And every sin and sickness and sorrow and death and tear will be wiped away. Revelation 21, all because of Jesus. All from him, all by him, all in him as we're united with him, all with him, through him, and for him. So how do we walk in this afternoon? Discouraged, tepid, lukewarm, exhausted, aware of our sins. The psalm forces us to think, how are we going to walk out? How are we going to walk out of here this evening? Are we going to walk out more aware of our sin or more aware of God's grace? More aware of what we have done or more aware of what God can do? More aware of where we lack or more aware of God's abundant goodness that he longs to pour out upon us? So if we feel like we've almost flatlined, that we're sinking rather than soaring, that we're almost drowning in our own kind of lukewarmness, The psalm reminds us that we have a God, a sovereign God who is able to restore, to revive, to renew, to refresh his people. His grace is sufficient for us. We just have to cry out to him. And as my, as I said, as Ray Ortland, who's one of my favorite authors, wrote in a book, forget what it was called, but he says, for every again of sin, there is a again of grace. For every again of sin, there is an again of grace. It might come like the Negeb. It might come as a hard-won crop after sowing, even in tears. But God will restore. God will revive. People will look on and say, the Lord has done great things for them. And we will say, yes, the Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad.